of existence and to make the most of this cyclic existence of our meeting every Friday evening. Let's first uh, spend a few minutes in silent meditation. Getting our postures right. Especially the back upright when you are doing a sitting meditation. Try to bring the mind home to this time, this place, this moment. As the saying goes, the body is squarely on its place, with the mind within it, not outside of it, and there is the prospect of peace settling into the mind. So try to find your mind within the body, with the body squarely, yet comfortably least let the mind settle into its own natural rhythm while focusing on any parts within the body be it the sensations of the breath, and try to do so alertly, attentively, delightfully. So, by way of setting a proper and fitting motivation for this session, as we are discussing and exploring Dharma, let's try to mold our mind in tune with what we have just aspired to do, which is to attain Buddhahood, in order to benefit all sentient beings. Let's take a moment here in exploring how others deserve such a treatment from us in willing to take upon ourselves the responsibility and also face the hardships on the path of achieving not a trivial feat, but 
fullest of it, the fullest and the highest of attainments, the fullest and the highest of goals that we can set before ourselves, that is attaining Buddhahood, which is saying, leaving no room whatsoever for any afflictions and the traces, residues of them, instead replacing them completely, thoroughly, with the full awakening of all the positive qualities, which would definitely entail sacrificing a lot, almost like taking a 180-degree turn from our own habitual being, that's really aspiring to be radically changed. How is it that we can aspire to do so, to take upon ourselves such a responsibility for the sake of others? How is it that others deserve this? First and foremost, we are because of others. Just think of when we were born, we had nothing, nothing except our very, very delicate body and very, very innocent mind, or very premature mind. And that body, the body that we call ourselves, do not even question who, does, who else does it belong to. It has come from our parents, and we came with nothing else with us. So think of ourselves at this point, what we know, what we have, what we can call ourselves, ours, from the education to the work, security, to the future, prospects, possible, possible prospects of even rising higher up the aspired ladder, all of this has depended, dependent, depended on others and will depend on others. Be that someone else, be someone you know or you do not know, or you will ever know. On top of this, there is no difference whatsoever between us and others. And here we can even go beyond our human race, humankind in our very basic aspiration, rightful aspiration, fundamental rightful aspiration for 
wanting happiness and not suffering. We are all same. Each and every one of us make our moves every day, be that through our body, speech, and mind, driven by these aspirations, which is right for fundamentals, rational, totally deserving, yet taking clue from our own selves. Let's see how smart we all are in really pursuing this rightful goal, how successful we are, where are we, despite all the so-called successes, where are we in this journey of our rightful pursuance of happiness and abandoning suffering. Be that in our own personal lives or in collective lives, public lives, private lives, More often than not, we come upon sufferings, we come upon mishaps. In many cases, mishaps, tragedies of our own making, be that mental tragedies or physical. And in this condition of in incompetence in matching our actions with the rightful deep aspiration, we all seem. Despite this confusion, we still extend our helping hands to each other, be that willingly, intentionally or not. We get by within our confusion, amongst our confusion, through helping each other. So no one is deserving of any mistreatment, mishap, tragedies. And then, if only we could look at things properly, we cannot, we cannot point to anything that others do, which could not be turned around into something positive for ourselves, while they are being the process of their own misbehavior, misdeeds, or not. This has been the case all along, even continues to this day. As much as we can count 
innumerable people who have made explicit, direct difference in our lives for the better. Likewise, we were as well count and leave out none for the prospect, the potential, at least they carry, that we can take advantage of if only we could look at them properly. So from this angle, we have every reason to be caring, loving, cherishing, valuing others. And our own good, our own benefit lies in caring for them, in thinking about them, in caring for them, in loving them, being compassionate towards them. For that, they serve as the indispensable object, indispensable impetus, us. So as much as we aspire to get ourselves freed from the sufferings, likewise we should as well be valuing the role of others and also including them in this journey of ours, in making our mutual conditions better. So thinking along these lines, as well as thinking from, from the Buddhist viewpoint of how Buddhas, Bodhisattvas become who they are, due to Others, we may say, due to the kindness of others, at the least, without their participation, without their involvement, there wouldn't be any Buddhas, there wouldn't be any Buddhas. So likewise, our aspiration is totally dependent on them. So looking from all these fronts, we have no choice. We should be naturally be more kind, open, caring to others. Let's dedicate this session together in expanding our sense of other caring even greater. So we even should be able to include all sentient beings that could be conceived of, not just human kind in this world, but beyond that into the universe, wherever there may be sentient beings, who have the same aspirations, undergo sufferings, even though they do not like, fall short of happiness that they aspire for 
so deeply. Towards that end, let's aspire to become fully awakened so that we can hear true benefit, all sensing beings, benefit that could last, benefit that could provide them everything, benefits that could lead them to actually fulfilling their rightful aspiration for lasting happiness and total elimination of sufferings. Okay, so we are still in that chapter. Uh, for those of you online, joining online, we are looking at page 278, the last paragraph. Is that where we left last time? Okay. Which opens with Bhagavan or endowed victor. Is that where we left last time? I think so. Is one epithet of the Buddha. So that's Chomdende in Tibetan. Chomdende. Uh, the translators, when they were translating this word, Bhagawan, into Tibetan, uh, they added one more syllable, de, which means transcend, or exceed, or excel. The original word itself, Bhagavan, Chumden means endowed victor. Chumden means someone who possesses the quality of having overcome something. Chom means destroy, for destroyer, like, like someone who has eliminated something that needs to be eliminated. So endowed with, endowed with a quality of having abandoned something that needed to be abandoned, so that it is now something of a past, not to worry about anymore, about it coming back. Whereas most of our problems keep coming back. <laughs> That's because our hitting, our addressing hasn't gone that far. <laughs> we fall short of striking at them. Whereas from then that alludes to that quality of having abandoned something that needed to be abandoned to such an extent of now making it never return back. In this regard, there can be, relatively speaking, there can be many people, many beings who are not yet Buddhas, who could have Partly, part of this quality, 
So even from Buddhist point of view, from the path of seeing onward, the beings on the path of seeing onward, they gain what we call cessation. Not necessarily cessation of the full defilements or full obscurations, obstructions, but part of it. And then they do so increasingly, incrementally, as they move on along. So they also have Chomden, kind of a possessor of a quality of a permanent abandonment of certain quality. So they needed the they needed to add one syllable, which means that they means transcend. One who excels among all those who claim or who possess some quality of such abandonment, such level of abandon, abandonment. So transcendent for destroyer, or transcendent destroyer, transcendent eliminator, something like that. Anyway, it is one epithet of the Buddha. So in terms of having transcendent, it transcendent everywhere, transcendent, transcendent, anyone who could have any amount of such quality, there will be none but the Buddha, who has become fully awakened. And this quality of full awakening is not just a quality of, not just an intellectual quality of awakening, of become aware, rather awakening in the sense of all of the positive, I will say, all of the positive mind cells, mental cells, having become fully activated. And under the weight of it, none of the negativities even stand the chance of ever popping up its head because of it is having been totally eliminated even to its very subtlest traces, subtlest stains. If we were to think of bad smell producing thing as something to be avoided, in this case, not just getting rid of this thing itself, but even the subtle stains it could have left behind, even that has been cleared. So to that extent, a Buddha is be- has become awakened. I don't know how awakened happens, happens to be chosen to be a word for translation here, but uh, once we accept it, uh, I have to insist, what do you call, force the connotations into it. So awaken usually has this sense of becoming aware, not anymore, how do you call ignorant, right? Aware, but it has this quality of, added quality of awakening all of its positive qualities. So that doesn't necessarily always 
is limited to cognitive aspects, but also empathic, emotional empathy uh, qualities as well, which means leaving none of the positive potentials unawakened, fully awakened. So Buddha's state is the state of no, nothing remaining as a potent, potency. Every, all of the positivities have fully awakened, fully awakened, it's not just partially awakened or awakening, or it is fully awakened. Now you may ask, what about the negativities? Oh no, the training is such that with the, the training is such that with the cultivation of the positivity, it's natural for its opposite negativities to weaken. And then the training itself involves deliberate attempt in addressing them. And that's so in a very smart way. How? By knowing the ins and outs of these afflictions. And thus, striking at them where it should hit. <laughs> the Buddha is endowed with all excellent qualities and it's victorious in overcoming the four maras. Now comes the topic of maras. I've been dying. I've been dying to discuss this. <laughs> or should I say, I've been dying to face this, face this. <laughs> The four maras. So the Buddha is endowed with all excellent qualities. So, so that part, all excellent qualities have become fully awakened. Right? And none of the excellent qualities is there yet to be awakened, yet to be activated. And that's under the force of that, he has become fully victorious in overcoming any obstacles whatsoever on, in the way of becoming a fully awakened being. And that obstacles includes four maras. <laughs> and the four maras are here. Which number? Which number in the series is is it? It is three, right? I think in the, uh, either in here or somewhere, Venerable may have expanded on this, but here she's treating it in a very, uh, mm, very brief way, counting the four maras, the polluted aggregates, afflictions, death, and destruction to external objects. We, can any one of you, or do you want to count these four little differently, with different translation? <laughs> I'm pushing. <laughs> well, but the last one, yeah, the last one, she has been very generous in not, in kind of, in, in, in kind of being very skillful as well as mm, 
nailing it right in terms of what it does, uh, but avoids using direct translation there. <laughs> okay, let's redo, re redo it. <laughs> the four matters aggregates, the polluted aggregates, right? The polluted aggregates means our own uh, five aggregates, which are which are born from the afflictions and the actions induced by them. So, with the afflictions being the main cause, which leads to the actions as afflicted and defiled, the two combined together uh, propels our birth within samsara. And that birth take particular form with ag aggregates. In some cases, very subtle aggregates, some cases, gross aggregates like ours. And some have not all the five aggregates, but uh, four of them. But some have, uh, well, if you speak in terms of gross uh, levels. So aggregates. So polluted aggregates is very es essential to be uh, pointed out. In that these aggregates, this, this, our body mind complex is a result of polluted cause and conditions. And because of that, uh, the resultant aggregates are polluted in that they have deficiencies, natural deficiencies. We do not have to add on it, but we do. We add onto the, onto, on, onto the deficiencies of the aggregates uh, by mistreating it, not understanding it. But the aggregates themselves are so polluted that they have their own natural uh, disadvantages, natural weaknesses. And over time it becomes very clear, right? But even early on also, it's deficiencies in, in terms of its being vulnerable to diseases, uh, etc. Aging. It starts right from our birth and our vulnerability to any weaknesses, all of those are there. That's one Mara. One Mara, not with eyes and nose and ears. Then the second is afflictions, the afflictions themselves, the cause. The main cause for these aggregates is afflictions. Although, I sometimes see the need of really defining afflictions. Because in English, affliction is a very general term. Very general term. Uh, so much so that I clearly remember in one of my visits to India on our science intensive uh, program, which usually coincides with uh, study abroad students from Emory. So very often I will be involved uh, with them as well. 
not as formal uh, part of it, but informally uh, being involved with their projects and whatnot. Uh, one statement someone made is that fear definitely is an affliction. And that's perfectly right in the usage of the term in English. But here we are using affliction in a very uh, specific way, more uh, loaded, Buddhist loaded way, that it cannot just be used as so liberally to include fear in general. sadness in general. By which I'm saying that fear in general is not an affliction in this sense. Fear doesn't necessarily have to be anything bad. A certain point of one's progression, there could be certain types of fears that we need to cultivate and then overcome them. Or be done with them, be done, or, 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 in a sense, generate that fear, and then by utilizing it, uh, you then achieve, you overcome the the, the point of concern, so that he, fear diffuses as well as the fear would have been made proper use of. So in that sense, it's not something to be blocked, affront, or denied, or kind of uh, objected, affront. Rather, cultivate in the first place, make it grow, and then let it lead one to a certain spiritual awakening. So is the same case with some sense of sadness as, as well, some sense of unease as well. Because there are certain things in the world that that definitely and what do you call deserves being un deserves being disapproved of, being unhappy about. And from that comes something good. Otherwise that good cannot come. So in, in anyway, here affliction is the glacier in Tibetan Nyamon. It necessarily has to be inf- or misinformed by the misconstrued self-grasping. And then to a certain extent, even fed by self-centeredness. Then, then there is death. Now here, death not in general. Death over which we have no control, 
Rather, the control lies in the hands of afflictions and the karma induced by them. So some kind of a death that is imposed upon us without our control, without our say, by certain forces. Of course, the forces within us in the form of afflictions and karma induced by them, but they control it without our consent, without our chance of having any say over that. That kind of a death is considered a mara. And when, okay, let's, and then there is this, 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 this fourth one, the fourth mara. The fourth mara is, I mean, just as in all the other maras, the fourth mara also has two levels, subtle and gross. Here we are not making that distinction. We are in general just speaking of the gross maras. In any way, uh, the fourth one is is the king of desire realm, the boss of desire realm. So whoever tries to supersede desire realm, he gets disturbed. Why don't they stay within my realm? Why do they transcend me and and make me or render me useless or even weaker than them? <laughs> so somehow it is not someone fixed, but it is it is. A, It is a being, like within our society also, we can find so many people, so many people thinking so many different ways, and and some that we cannot imagine even, right? make sense of even, but, but people can be so engrossed in it, so into it, and so bought into it, that they can, they cannot see any other way. And all that does is destruction. So likewise, likewise, we are capable of becoming someone or something of some status or, st- or stature or status within the samsaric society, yet at the same time, not be smart enough in really knowing the real cause of suffering and and thus uh, be ill-intended towards those who excel themselves, excel, excel them. So anyhow, on a gross level, this fourth one is a being called Devaputra. Literally translated as Deva's son. Not necessarily son, it could be a daughter also. <laughs> Depending on who, who creates the karma. It's a karmic result. Right? So Deva Putra. But it says even in the English or even in the 
original Sanskrit also it says Devaputra. Putra means son, not daughters. So maybe not daughters. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and it's it is interesting. This these four Maras are presented mm, in a in a way that kind of I think brings us some ex some additional perspective to what Buddhism is claiming is possible, which is a state of deathlessness. Although even in the sutras, they speak of for, de for deva, for maras and whatnot, and they function in keeping us from achieving the state of deathlessness, but the full explanation of that can be only possible uh, through uh, the highest yoga tantra. Because in us, only one thing that is deathless is our clear light mind, clear light mind's mount in the form of the subtlest energy. All the rest of our minds, even all the rest of our minds, including mental, not this gross one, even subtler than this, so long as it is short of the subtlest mind, all of them are temporary. Usually we do not hear that. On the sutra level, we hear almost like it, we are speaking of the mental mind, which is what remains keeps going. But this mental mind that we associate with, that we identify, that we can identify, is so gross. It is advantageous as much as all the afflictions are. Not just afflictions are advantageous, but even all of the rest of the, the mental minds are advantageous in the sense of having an end to it, of having, I cannot say having studied somewhere. We could, at least, we could say studied somewhere. Uh, because when we speak of its beginninglessness, be that even be that for the mental things or physical things, we have to rely on. For a full explanation, we have to rely on the subtlest clear light mind and its subtlest uh, and is mound in the form of the subtlest energy. The two, they are the actual things that didn't see any birth anew and wouldn't see any death anymore. But we could become, or we could attain a state of deathlessness only when we could have Nothing but just that, in terms of our, in terms of our, you may call it aggregate or whatever, nothing but the settler's clear mind and its mound, and that too, fully functional, fully operational, on that basis. Then we become fully operational, fully functional, yet at the same time, having not to meet with death anymore. Because that is deathless. Death has no birth, no death. 
no birth, no seizing. All the rest have. Yeah, it will be difficult to wrap our heads around it. Today, I was able to match this expression with the Tibetan word. The Tibetan word is Gotsuemasong, which means my mind, my head is not cooked around it. <laughs> my head is still uncooked around it. I said, this cannot be said in English. What could be... It's in, yeah, you could say, but, but no, no, no. What I meant is, in Tibetan we have this expression. When we say that I cannot understand it, uh, my, my head is not cooked. <laughs> well enough. I thought, oh, this, this cannot be the translation. There's only will be, I can't wrap my head around it. Have something head about it, but not quite say cook, say wrap. So that's what I'm collecting and maybe contributing to the Tibetan society. <laughs> and there are so many such expressions which are hard to be conveyed in English if one were to do a direct translation. And some, sometimes the direct translation can make big blunder. Did I share it here or some, some other occasion? Maybe, maybe in Atlanta I shared it. <laughs> anyway, I will spare you. I will spare you with another laughter. <laughs> Is that being kind? <laughs> oh, no, no, it wouldn't be in good taste for a monk to say that. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, it is an actual happening. Uh, and it is so strange. Yeah, someone was doing direct translation. Oh, it was, it was not a blast. It was a total crash. <laughs> okay. Yeah, some time ago, when I was in Atlanta, when I was in Atlanta, now this is becoming a thing of the past, when I was in Atlanta, I came across this week Times magazine that they put out at the end of the year, where they speak of 100 Tamils, something, something. And maybe, yeah, among them I saw one scientist who claims to have found some kind of a, uh, element within us. Chemical, chemical substance within us that when ex, uh, what do you call harnessed uh, can can provide us the prospect of not dying. I was I kept that kept referring to that and then kept waiting for some kind of news, but so far I haven't heard anything. <laughs> But even allowing that, that that becomes reality, so long as the aging is not addressed, <laughs> then there's no good in in then there is no good in living forever. <laughs> that will be even more suffering. <laughs> and then if if that also do not 
take away our our susceptibility to sickness, then there's no point. It's like having more sickness, more aging, more senility, more senescence, all of that. What is it? Just for the sake of living longer. No point. But this that this deathlessness is a different thing. Except it's a little difficult to wrap our head around. <laughs> but in Buddhism there is a trend. Things possible would be mentioned much earlier, but its full explanation cannot be found there. And there they will try to explain it. They're are desperate to come up with something. Desperate in the sense that it has to match with with their level of the reading of the world, their re- level of how it explains, how it presents it, so that people, beings in their journey of finding more joy and more happiness, lasting ones, can can kind of uh, catch up with them one step at a time. But they would make claims beforehand where as the full explanation can be found only in the highest yoga tantra. And when we speak of highest yoga tantra and other tantric Vajrayana uh, teachings, they are specific to this world. Some aspects of it are specific to this world. I heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama saying, no matter wherever it may be, so long as we are sentient beings, the only way to become fully awakened is by harnessing our subtlest clear light mind. In what ways we do, it will vary with what kind of a being we are, what our mechanism is. So our mechanism, our physical, mental mechanism of this world is unique. And so the 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 tantric practices of how to actualize this clear light mind without having to just only wait until we die where there is no surety whether we'll be able to be up to the task in recognizing it, identifying it and utilizing it on the path instead of waiting for that unsure prospect actualizing it beforehand while you're fully active whatnot. it employs certain methods but those methods will not work in other world systems because of their different physical physical uh, of, of their different physiology. But when it comes to mind, so long as a sentient being, nowhere where no no matter where it may be, the 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 basic uh pattern, the basic function, the basic uh, mode of behaving would be the same. So in any case, his honesty is, in any case, it would have to be always, everywhere, anytime, it would have to be always through the, through the means of highest, through the means of the clear, uh, subtle, subtle, clear that mind, and its mount in the form of the subtlest energy. It's always a combination. So this this general statement in Buddhism, even in the scriptures also saying, that is when mind leaves body, 
mind is all by itself now, all alone. That's again a very general statement. It needs to be refined, fine-tuned to say that no, it never is always mind by itself. At the subtlest, even at the subtlest level, it will have its own accompanying physical element. So it's all, it, they are so intertwined, so much so that they could be even called the same thing. Same thing with two sides, you may call them. But nonetheless, one is mental, another is non-mental. That's how we could explain locality, it's, which is very essential to, to, to make sense. Otherwise, if mind were to just be on its own with no physicality as ever, it could be either, it should be either everywhere or nowhere. But that's not the case. In while saying, even when we say that, oh yeah, mind leaves the body, now the mind is by itself, Yet, at the same time, it is somewhere, somewhere. So how come? It cannot be. Because mind, if it is not physical and doesn't rely on any physical substratum, then it would have to be everywhere or nowhere. Yet, at the same time, even at the sutra levels, they kind of make that statement, yet at the same time not touch on this locality part. Because... That part cannot be explained fully at that level, only at the highest yoga tantra level. So anyway, so anyway, so all I'm doing is trying to push my agenda. <laughs> that yes, that yes, there is something called deathlessness, and it's because of a substance within us, of an element within us, which has not been born, not ceased, which doesn't, which, which, which is not born, nor does it ever cease. All the rest do. Well, I'm not quoting Har Sutra here, okay? So, no birth, no death, no eye, no nose. I'm not speaking in terms of ultimate reality on conventional level. So that's why we speak of these four maras in relation to this question, in relation to this, to this phenomena of deathlessness. How these four maras are associated with this. We say, uh, in this this four this this topic of four maras, uh, what do you call circle around, sent circle around the theme of deathlessness or death, or the or the deficiency of death or the death or the, or the prospect of deathlessness. What dies? What causes death? What is death? What prevents us from? being deathless on, on those four terms. Right? What dies? The aggregates. 
What causes death? Afflictions. What is death? Death is death. <laughs> what prevents us from being deathless? On a gross level, the Devaputra, but on a subtler level, because I spoke, I told you that there are subtle levels of the four Maras as well. The ones that are counted here are the gross level. So, so in, in, in place of polluted aggregate, it's subtle, it's, it's subtle uh, counterpart will be mental body generated through oh it's difficult to convey anyway mental body that a four destroyer who is no more subject to afflictions uh, mental bodies that four destroyer even bodhisattva at the Arya level who are no more subject to uh, the influence of afflictions and actions in, induced by them uh, who the, the mental bodies that they can take. That is the, yet none, nonetheless, uh, that has its own, weak, own deficiencies. In terms of affliction, in terms of affliction, the subtle part, the subtle counterpart of the affliction Mara would be, of course, no more afflictions. Affliction would have been totally uh, eradicated. But this is uh, the subtle stains of the afflictions. The subtle stains, not, not, not even the latency, not even the root, not even the seed. The seed would have been already completely overcome, destroyed, when the afflictions are destroyed and rendered unrendered, unreturnable. But their subtle stains, which, uh, which, which is responsible for which is responsible for this unavoidable mistaken appearance of things, even when one has advanced to the level of the tenth bumi, which would be the last bumi before Buddhahood, even un even till then. So that is the subtle. Now the subtle death is a, is a very interesting one. This death, this gross death, is the gross is the death that we are all subject to. What kind of a death over which we have no control? Some other force has a control over it, but not us. We may or may not like like to die, right? But it would be in any case. Uh, enforced by afflictions and actions induced by them. Even in the case of intended death also, it would be under the force of, it would be when we would be out of our mind and would be completely overcome by an affliction and that drives an action leads to this death. But even without that also, natural death, we live up to 10, 100 or whatever and we die in sleep or whatever. It's something not we have under control. So that induced by some other force over which we have no control. But there is this 
even the Tibetan also, the subtle, the, the, the subtle counterpart of death Mara is called inconceivable death. Samji Mijaba. is a Tibetan term which is very tricky. Sometimes Samji Mijaba is, is, a, is a quality that you ascribe to something. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I cannot even conceive of it. I cannot even imagine that could happen. Wonderful in that sense. But here it doesn't have that quality of wondrous nature, or maybe so, but nonetheless it is suggesting more in terms of how it is so far from our our usual strength of conception, that it is un, in, in, inconceivable. Nonetheless, something that happens beyond our control. But that happens, this happens to bodhisattvas at the tender level even. Who are way past, who are way past completely eliminating their afflictions and actions induced by them, thus way past uh, the prospect of ever going through the gross death. So they can they can, they can, today uh, I, I found another term, better term for translating Chingilaba. Chingilaba comes, Chingilaba, which we usually translate as blessed, that cannot be blessed. Because we speak of the Mara's Chingilaba, they do not bless us, they, this, they put their spell on us, right? So it is inf- more like an influence. Right. So, uh, so, and and so so a bodhisattva at the tender level can even quote unquote change lapa, death, in in the sense that they can extend their 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 life. But so have way gone way past overcoming the the usual death that we understand, which is. Uh, called the the Mara of death in the grosser sense. But even the Bodhisattvas on the tenth Bhumi, ninth Bhumi onwards, those are on the pure Bhumis, eighth, ninth, and tenth. Even they succumb to it after having lived so long or even having had the choice of extending their life, they could this an inconceivable death could befall them. And and who is responsible for that? The subtle the subtle version of the Devaputra Mara. So we call it Devaputra Mara, but this subtle Devaputra Mara is not a, not a being at all. It is a force that 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 uh, it is a force that uh, what do you call that obstructs 
at least, yeah, they functioned as an obstruction to achieving deathlessness, the subtlest one. The gross Devaputra, the force of the, the gross Devaputra Mara can be overcome. Uh, this is interesting. Can be overcome when one attains the path of seeing. Now be warned, unless we have worked our way to till the, the path of seeing, we could fall under the influence of even Devaputra. In the form of his or her, or, or rather I should confine to his, because Devaputra, he, he, I, cannot, I cannot play around with this, right? It is Devaputra, not Putri. <laughs> so, so, yeah, be warned, we can be under the influence of Devaputra in terms of our thoughts and whatnot. And it's quite eye-opening to find the scriptures mention that when one attains the path of seeing, which is when one would have now gained incontrovertible faith experientially in the efficaciousness of the Buddha's teaching in the form of having now generated an actual cessation, actual state of abandonment, which has rendered its object of abandonment totally unreturnable, irreversible. And that has been given rise to by its corresponding path, which would be the true path. The path capable of, not from far, the path capable of immediately, in its next next immediate moment, capable of generating, or yeah, generating this uh, this true cessation. Even if that may be just of the acquired afflictions, but the acquired although. All it has abandoned is acquired afflictions, which includes both emotional afflictions as well as cognitive afflictions. But nonetheless, those acquired afflictions have been rendered totally irreversible. Thus, the first ever taste of true cessation has been felt. So now, Devaputra cannot mess with you. You are so firm in your in your stand that it cannot fool you at all. But we still have the subtle Mara Devaputra, non-being Mara in Devaputra form, non-being Devaputra Madra, which is just called Devaputra to put for the sake of calling it, but it's not at all a Putra, neither a Putri nor a being. Well, I dwell a lot of, on, on the Maras. I don't know why. I might have got uh, influenced by Mara today. <laughs> but at least I'm speaking against it, speaking bad of it. So that's, that's some sign that, that, that I'm, not under the, I'm not under the influence. <laughs> in, in the West, when you say under the influence, it means just one thing, right? Or two things. But 
you could be under the influence of so many things. <laughs> and and the Mara Putra, the, the Deva Putra is one that we need to really watch over. Would come in so many different kinds of thoughts, ideas like that. You have to be always on the guard. So mainly it comes in in the in the form of thoughts. In the form of thoughts that you are susceptible to. It could feed you with something outwardly appealing, yet having the function of corrupting you from within. And that continues until you have reached the path of seeing. And not just having entered into the first gate, but even passing, going past the second gate, having the third path, the third gate, finally you can say, okay, bye-bye, right? Maraputra, bye-bye. By the way, think twice in what you want to do, right? Get changed yourself. That's not going to work all the time to all beings. <laughs> so that's why gate, gate, para gate is marked with para, an extra thing, extra tag there, because it really is a big milestone. Okay, we must push through. <laughs> I just did it one line. <laughs> <laughs> But that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yes, I still have to. I still have some wrapping around, to, wrapping my head around to do. I have some questions. Okay. Uh, okay. So, by the way, uh, the the maras that I mentioned here, except for the distraction to external objects. Uh, which could be very general. Uh, all, all the all the three, at least the first two are the gross levels. The third one, death could be either our typical death under the force of afflictions or inconceivable death under some other external force. Even after having gained this capacity of prolonging one's life. Uh, several times, nonetheless, one could still uh, succumb to death sometime. But the deathlessness, that, and that's because, except for, except for Buddha, except, except for having, except for someone who has become, until we have become fully awakened, which means leaving nothing unactivated, which means not, not even sparing the subtle escalated mind. When it is fully activated, then that's all it will remain, because its awakening and activation also means, uh, also means uh, leaving behind all the rest of the grossness also. So being fully, fully functional at that time. So deathlessness. So that's that's an interesting topic. So that means Buddhas don't die. Once you become Buddha, they don't die. Now, once I've thrown this, so many questions that come in your mind. <laughs> once I was in uh, in 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 
Thailand. I was in Thailand only once. Yes, only once. One of those times, one of the days I went on arms round in my barefoot. Oh, oh, I, I suffered. Couldn't bear even the small, small pebbles because I was not used to walking barefoot at all. But uh, I did survive, and I enjoyed it. Uh, so, so there, one of the, my activities was going to two, three universities. One is called. Any of you know some university in Bangkok? Chulalongkorn. Yeah, Chulalongkorn. That was one. I went, and then it's Chulalongkorn, the one that uh, Venerable Damananda was a professor. That's a different one. Chulalongkorn is another one. There's one that Venerable Damananda, the Bhikshuni, was teaching at that. So I went to a couple of these universities, and we had a discussion. One of them asked, so you believe that Buddha still live, still alive? And one of them asked, uh, "Yeah." And my main topic uh, discussion was how to generate bodhicitta. Uh, they were so interested, they fascinated by it, and they asked it. Uh, but they were not so convinced about the consequential order of the instructions. How could it be so fixed? They asked. I kind of thought, okay, that's understandable. Yeah, it shouldn't be thought as so rigid as, as, as such. But nonetheless, we could account for some causality in there. Uh, so, yeah, they asked very typical, very typical, uh, um, why questions. Not to say that uh, Theravadins necessarily are all Vaibhashikas by their philosophical viewpoint, but the questions really circled around Vaibhashikas. It, it came alive, what we studied in the Tensa, like Vaibhashikas believes. It came so alive there, and I had to really defend myself. <laughs> I said, yes, Buddhas are still around. The one Buddha that appeared in the history was a mere demonstration, but Buddha is still alive. Whereas in the Vibhashika system, that's considered the actual Buddha, all there is. And he was, up until full awakening, an ordinary being, and from the point of awakening, an awakened being, nonetheless still with the body that is subject to pain, etc. Then I said, no, that cannot be the actual Buddha. He is said to have, by you quoting their assertion, he is said to have spent three countless eons accumulating merits, and all he got to do is just leave 45, 45 more years to teach the Dharma and be gone. That is so unjust. That is not typical working of causality. 
And there were other questions also. I listed them and I went back to Varanasi where I was teaching. I said, ha, I have something to share. I really, I said, this came so live. They asked this and this is this. How else are you going to answer it? So, yeah, so the natural question is, is the Buddha alive? So, one pursuit of a Buddhist is pursuit to another way of saying pursuing Buddha, Buddha Buddha is saying pursuing deathlessness and thus being able to op- benefit to all sentient beings all the time. And being, okay. Let me push, push it a little bit. <laughs> I will read it. Since the mind has the natural capacity to be aware and to understand, when all obscurations have been removed, it will be able to directly perceive all phenomena. Directly perceive all phenomena, all at once. Uh, just to share with you, the Vaibhashika's perspective of a Buddha being omniscient is that they can know anything so long as they attend to it. At any given time, they are capable of knowing everything. Not that they know everything, but at, at any given time, as soon as they direct their attention anywhere, they would have known it. But in the case of the Mahayana, the they would literally say, they know everything at any given time. That said, that that too, they know it directly, perceptually, because Buddhas don't have any conceptual thoughts. I shared with you, right? From a scientific point of view, at least science at this at this moment, there's no mind but conceptual mind. If you have no conceptual mind, you cannot get by. Even going from here to there, you have to be able to have a conceptual mind. In really conceiving, guessing, what it might look like, well, how I should gear myself, steer myself, all of that. There's, those, those are all conceptual thoughts. Buddhas don't have even the slightest, even a teeny tiny bit of that. All they have by way of mentality is perceptual. Which means unmediated, direct understanding. And now, now that includes the true truths. Right? A Buddha's omniscient mind is able to realize simultaneously both veiled and ultimate truth with a single consciousness. Now, even Buddhas have to, when it comes to how things work, Buddhas are no exception, right? How come it is unfair that sentient beings, when they have a perceptual understanding of emptiness, they lose sight of all other things. They just immerse in it in such a way that they do not see any concept, any conventional things. When they see conventional things, they cannot perceive ultimate truth directly. They always have to alternate between the two. Like, like today after lunch, 
the prayer ends with appearance emptiness. Even if we try to capture that appearance emptiness together, my best way of understanding that and trying to do that is looking at looking out into the window or through a glass door, not uh, around this time when all you see is the reflection, but in the daytime, when there is sun, right, outside. So if you look, you can see the trees, but if you kind of shift the focus, you can see yourself there. But if you do like this, so my understanding of emptiness appearance is You see yourself, you lose yourself, you see yourself, you lose yourself. I cannot conceive, I cannot conceive emptiness appearance simultaneously perceiving, simultaneously. It's so difficult. And in the sentient beings, not a single sentient being, even the Aryas included, be them of the highest 10th level group level, they can do it. They just have to alternate between the two. When they understand emptiness can in inferentially, maybe they, they they have both the conventional truth and ultimate truth, but that's not seeing them directly. So for the sentient beings, seeing them directly is directly together is never a possibility. It's because being immersed in emptiness involves involves in the ultimate. Losing the object on which one began the search. Not in the sense of negating it, not in the sense of making it non-existent, but in the sense of, in the sense of affirming or in the sense of confirming that it is not findable in the ultimate analysis. And in the course of that probing, we lose sight of it. And that's the only way we could confront its mere negation is mere lack of none it's mere lack of inherent existence now my question is how come buddhas don't respect this rule by the way they do i have a difficulty expressing it in english uh, but i will try even buddhas they do see the both, both, both the truths simultaneously together. But in terms of seeing the ultimate truth, they do not see the conventional truth. In terms of seeing the conventional truth, they do not see the ultimate truth. They still follow the same rule. I, I use the term in terms of, I don't know what it means, but uh, it, how it comes across. But it, the rule still applies. Rule is rule. The law of working... Causalities. Okay, with that, uh, <laughs> with that, uh, we all aspire to see appearance emptiness, not by having to do this. <laughs> by the way, it is quite interesting. You see your face, and you and, and you zoom out. You see the trees. You can even do so by completely losing even the even the frame of your face but when you zoom out zoom in you can see yourself colors and all of that right you, uh, we can all relate to that experience so that's how i try to imagine what buddha's 
but seeing emptiness. But I cannot help but alternate between the two. <laughs> Simultaneously coming, it's really difficult to imagine even. So let's uh, aspire to be able to do that without having to alternate. Uh, but in the meantime, do try that also. That will give us a glimpse of appearance, emptiness in a quick succession. <laughs> Okay, please believe you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>